our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability here on Straight Independent Radio. I'm your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. I'm joined today by my regular guests, my colleagues and friends, Liza Citron, disabled autistic advocate and future special education teacher, Scott Hello. Davis writer, entrepreneur, speaker, and disabled advocate, Dr. Jeremy Pierce, philosopher, my husband, and a fellow autism parent. We are sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sentia.org. Check us out online to find out all the great things that we do with people with disabilities. Today, we are discussing the topic of sensory needs. Those of us with developmental disabilities those of us who are, are neurotypical even, we have sensory needs. That is the way that our bodies, our brains take in information about the sensations that are happening to our bodies. And for some of us, those signals are a little bit overwhelming or underwhelming. And so we need to supplement the information that's coming in to help us feel comfortable in our skin. Liza, I want to start with you as the other autistic person here. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about what you experience in terms of sensory needs and how that influences your, how you feel in space. <laughs> well, for me, it's a, it's a, a little bit more complicated than it used to be due to other disabilities coming into the mix and affecting things. First, I'm going to go with more of what it used to be. A lot of the time, the biggest thing to which I was sensitive was sound and or touch. It, this loud sounds, that sort of thing. It's especially weird now because my processing of auditory information is potentially so much different than it was. The other disabilities I deal with can cause fatigue, pain, that sort of thing. And when that, the levels of that are up, my ability to process auditory information can get worse. I was recently diagnosed a couple of years ago with auditory processing disorder which is a subset of sensory processing disorder, essentially meaning that I have a lot of trouble processing auditory information. I, for me, it manifests as I hear things, but they essentially get all jumbled and I don't really understand what is being said. Yet another of the reasons that I use captions generally and that a lot of my needs are similar in terms of accommodations to those of a hard of hearing or deaf person, more likely a hard of hearing person. As for other aspects, the aspect of touch is a little bit weird because when I was a kid, I very much was sensitive to that as just, this is something that I don't want, this is overwhelming. In recent years, uh, some of the other disabilities I mentioned, 
among which are my fibromyalgia, have gotten worse. So I, it's hard to decipher a lot of the time which of those sensory things are from that and which are from the autism. Because, for example, light touch on my body or pressure can be painful. So when you have other disabilities going on, coming into that, just like with anything else, they interact and really find ways to work off of each other. And it's, it can be hard to decipher. In the classroom, these, it, I didn't have any real accommodations. So a lot of these needs were not being met, were not being taken into consideration even that I might either need to be placed somewhere different from other students, or I might need the teacher to tell me things separately. My experiences might be a lot different from what other artistic individuals have gone through because I didn't know about this. I didn't know what was going on because I wasn't, I didn't know anything about autism. I only knew that, knew that it was this thing that was going on with me, but I didn't know what it was or anyone who was dealing with it. I also feel like among autistic individuals, there is so much variation in terms of sensory needs. For example, I know that your oldest child, no, your second oldest rather, can <clears throat> touch a light bulb or a stove without feeling as though it's burning him. And yet there are other autistic kids who will be hypersensitive to touch, even something that is mildly warm or scratchy or anything like that will be uncomfortable for them. So I think within, even within the group of autistic people, there is a massive, massive difference in what our sensory needs are and what, how exactly that manifests. Now you you mentioned a couple of the a couple of the sensory modalities that we have to deal with as humans the the hearing the auditory sense and then the the touch or the uh, what's called the somatosensory touch. Mm -hmm. Now not everybody knows what all of those what all of those senses are. We most people learned in school that there were five. There's actually more than that. And you, oh, as, yeah. as you alluded to, we are the, the basic ones, the, the, the external senses that we are aware of are our visual system, our auditory system, the somatosensory or touch, uh, the gustatory, our, our sense of taste, and then olfactory, our, our sense of smell. Those are the ones that people know the most about and understand. But there's also our vestibular system, our, our sense of mm -hmm. balance and proprioception. That is your, your sense of um, your body in space and the, the pressure, that, the force that you feel on your body. And then there's pain. That's also mm -hmm. a, 
a, a sensory mechanism. And there, and there are like a few others because our bodies are designed to be able to sense what's going on in our environment to keep ourselves safe, to you know, meet our needs for food, shelter, those kinds of things. Now, for people with developmental disabilities, those systems happen to have um, varying sense of sensitivity. And the information that's coming into our brains about those senses sometimes gets scrambled. And so Liza, as you pointed out, some people may be undersensitive to their pain signals. Some people may be oversensitive to their pain signals. And that's not just with developmental disability. No. There, there are, I believe it's, um, there's something connected to the, to the genetic profile that brings about red hair that also makes yes. people more sensitive to pain. It's not that they're weak. It's not that they're sissies. It's not that they're extra whiny. No, they actually feel the pain more intensely. Hey, my brother's a redhead. But I think we also... <coughs> Sorry. I think we also have to note that for developmentally disabled individuals, this is potentially even more so because we already have so much going on in our brains. We are already in this hyper alert state again autistic individuals are it's been proven by psychological and neurological studies are pretty much constantly in a state of fight or flight and that means there is so much more input coming in and so much more sensitivity to that input because of course you would need that in a life or death situation but our bodies are just not willing to turn it off they're not willing to listen. Hey, um, you know, we're not going to die here. Why, why are you reacting like this? Why are you sensitive to this? We're not dying. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's exhausting to have your brain have that conversation. Yes. All the Yeah, but that's a, that's a potential explanation for one of the reasons why autistic individuals tend to have such extreme reactions on either end to different stimuli. Now, Jeremy, I wanna, I wanna bring you into this conversation. Scott, we're gonna get to you in a minute because I know you have some great information for us. Jeremy, I wanna bring you into this conversation uh, talking about what the sensory needs are or what they can be for people with developmental disabilities and what you've experienced in that area. One of the things that I have well, from talking to medical professionals and therapists and so on, but also just observing in our sons um, that um, I don't think most people would be aware of it even from knowing them. So for example, our oldest son has low muscle tone, um, which affects how he sits. So for many years, he would sit in a chair um, and I don't, I don't know if it's uh, politically correct to use the term anywhere, but I don't know any other term for it. What used to be called Indian style. I don't know if there's other, another name for it, but, but um, the, the, uh, he would sit in a chair that way and people would tell him that's not an appropriate way to sit. 
uh, he he uh, when he's standing for a long period of time, he just will sit, <laughs> and people will tell him it's inappropriate to do so. Or when he's uh, walking, he will want to take breaks more frequently than you would expect from someone who looks the way he does. Yes, I do the exact same thing due to either the pain from fibromyalgia or I also deal with possible orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, uh, which is essentially a form of dysautonomia, basically meaning if I stand up for too long, I can get lightheaded and potentially faint. Mm. So it's definitely that sort of sort of thing. What people expect of you, dependent on you know how you're feeling. This this is an aspect of sensor, sensory things that doesn't really get talked about nearly as much. Another thing he will do is he will sit on a chair with his feet on the chair and yep. his knees up near his chin. Yep. And uh, this isn't something that he has thought about to, to think through what position is most comfortable. He just does this. And apparently it meets his sensory needs in some way. But people will tell him that's not an appropriate way to sit. And, and um, I mean, I think we might have had that tendency when he was younger and we didn't really understand it. But certainly he's been told that by extended family members and, and, and so on. And I, there was a teacher in one of his class, in the class, in his classroom, one of his years that was particularly intolerant of certain kinds of behaviors that are very common with autism. And I think that was one of the things. Mm. So there, part of it with, with him though also was there was a lot of um, wiggling, uh, leg movements, um, perhaps movement around. He doesn't really rock like some people do, but um, there's a guy that we know um, who I guess he's probably in his 50s now who um, he went to our church and he would look at his watch every 30 seconds or so and rock. Every once in a while, he'd vocalize something pretty loudly and everyone there was relatively tolerant of it. I mean, no one complained about him. Ever. They were happy to have him there. They were, they were very friendly with him and, and so on. Uh, but but uh, to people who don't understand what's going on, when it's that extreme they'll they'll immediately think oh there's some kind of disability going on but when it's someone who you don't see the profoundness of the disability on its on the surface they'll think this is just bad behavior this is just mm -hmm. someone who's not disciplined in how to sit properly or or whatever uh someone who who needs who needs to be disciplined to know you sit still or you don't put your feet on the chair or whatever it might be so that's one kind of sensory need that I have seen that um, when you see a, a more profoundly obvious case, like someone like our second son who doesn't communicate as clearly and has much more severe impulse control issues and that kind of thing, you're more tolerant of it. <laughs> Whereas with someone you think is functioning in a, in a relatively more typical way, you're just not thinking this is a result of a disability this is a result mm -hmm. of something 
sensory processing or sensory experience or um, sensory integration or something like that. Uh, and I think it also affects perception too. Oh, definitely. One of the things that people who don't experience this don't get because they don't experience it is what it's like to experience the world when your senses are not integrated or when they're, 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 they're delayed and that kind of thing. So, all right, I mean, the, the, the delay in pain is something we've seen in our second son. I, I've, I've w witnessed him get, get a, a oil splash on him from a pan or something. And he doesn't notice it immediately sometimes, but then he does. <laughs> There's a delay in his processing of that and he doesn't mm -hmm. feel it immediately. And there are times he doesn't feel it at all. There were times when he'd come home from school and get off the bus and be limping. What's going on with him? Did he injure himself? And then a, a couple hours later, he's running down the sidewalk. And then he's limping again after that. Uh, is it that he's faking it? I doubt it. I mean, he probably doesn't have the social awareness, or didn't at that time anyway, to, to, to figure out that limping as a fake thing would get him anything. Uh, but more likely, he, there were times when he was feeling the pain of whatever injury he had, and there were other times when he wasn't. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the term sensory integration, and that's an important term uh, for us to understand, for listeners to understand. And in layman's terms, it's what your brain does with all of that information that comes in through your eyes, your skin, uh, your taste your taste buds, your ears, and the other sensory, um, the other sensory stimulus, the other parts of your body that respond to stimulus. All that information travels up your nerves to your brain, and then your brain has to process it and decide what to do about it. And it, there's multiple modes of information coming in. And so what needs to happen in your brain is that all of that information gets integrated and passed on to the decision-making parts of your brain. And for those, those of us with developmental disabilities, that, that process of integrating that information is different from the, what we consider to be the norm. And so we, we end up responding differently to the, the, stim the environmental stimuli because the information is being processed differently in our brains. Oh, now, yeah. Scott, I know that you've done some, you've done a, a bit of research and looking into sensory needs and how to meet those sensory needs. Tell us what you found. Uh, basically, I like to start with just a basic background of me. When I was born, and had my developmental delay, my parents said that uh, when I was at uh, having a study school in Albertson, New York, at times when the uh, alarm was, a bell was gonna go off or something, I, I would hide under my desk or even when we were gonna go over an overpass or something, I would get on, on the floor or something in the car. And even growing up, I was kind of, anxious or nervous, especially when we were going to have a, a planned two o'clock fire drill. And once I even got a detention because I asked about 158, when's the fire alarm going to go off? <laughs> so uh, that's just 
uh, a general idea. And I'm also thinking as we're talking about this, a good illustration could be the idea of a highway. It's how do you manage all that traffic? It would almost be congestion. That just popped into my mind. I don't, and I uh, would say ways to cope is for me, I take notes so I know where I am. And even when I was younger, I, I was tickled like my, by my brother, he like tickled me. And I'm even with a doctor, I can be very sensitive when they're, when they're doing some of the examinations. And I, I laugh a little bit, but overall, we're really talking about, this is sort of like a hidden disability in a way, even though you can see in the conversations we're having, it may not appear to a person exactly what the needs are, but it's just having that sense, of, finally, it's having that sensitivity where in someone's individual education plan or IEP, or even in adulthood at work, that they integrate that. Because even when I was working in the, in the environment of corporate, and there was just so much coming at me, I didn't know how. I ended up with piles and life I still do. It's hard to say what you do when because it's easy to get tired sometimes or not having that regular 11 to seven sleep pattern. I think that's another thing that might be important to mention. Autistic individuals are especially likely to experience insomnia and sleep disturbances because of the differences in our neurology and that can really <laughs> don't get me started and then that combines for me with the fatigue of fibromyalgia but oh back to what is uh back to what i was saying that can really affect the ways in which we experience our senses and our sensory inputs during our waking hours, if we have had a difficult night of sleep or if we haven't had as much deep REM sleep as we need to refresh our bodies and our minds, naturally there's going to be a difference in the way we perceive the world that day and the way we deal with our sensory inputs and, and, and take them in that day and interpret them. I can testify that it is much more challenging to deal with everyday stimuli when you are not well rested. So those of you who may be dealing with someone who's like extra cranky, consider, did they get enough sleep? I mean, parents know that when their toddlers don't get enough sleep, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. The same holds true for adults. You don't get enough sleep. Your brain struggles to process all the information that that gets thrown at it every day. And when you are someone who already has a unique pattern of processing, it's it's an extra challenge. So thank you, Liza, for bringing up the the fact that, that sleep disturbance plays a role in how we process information. Um, I also wanted, I want to get Scott to some more of what you found about how to deal with these sensory needs. I, I think we've identified that one of the 
biggest things that are that's necessary to effectively deal with sensory needs is first to recognize that they're there. Uh, it once I once I realized and understood that being in loud spaces with lots of people overwhelms me, it was easy for me to then make choices about how to deal with that because I knew it was a thing. Before I knew it was a thing, I couldn't figure out what the heck was wrong with me and, and why I was always so tense in large groups. Now that I know, I can be like, okay, yeah, I need some time out. I need some quiet time, some space, and I'll be back when I'm done. So Scott, what information have you found about helping people to recognize their sensory needs and then to meet those needs? Definitely is having that, having an understanding. This is just from common sense, especially with someone such as studies have shown with uh, people with hearing disorders or auditory disorders that you put them nearer to the front of the class, you have some kind of visual reminders, and, and that, that can be very helpful. Mm. Also, just if it's treated as more of a hidden disability, then you, we're not going to get those responses like why is that sad or even uh, your children, Dr. Pierce and Samantha, that Sam, I mean, that it will really help, and especially for teachers, because when I first went to public school, we didn't really understand about maybe the sensory needs per se. And even now I'm thinking, oh, that explains some of my behaviors. Yes. Don't. And now it's like, oh, maybe that's something I need to take a look at and how do I manage? So this program can get people aware of the idea of the hidden, the idea of education that we're stressing, whether it's how outside people like the police deal with the autistic people I think that, I mean, if they're educated in this, that mm-hmm. would give them yep. understanding because especially if they don't understand and yes, so that's just yeah. that that awareness is is key. It is important. And I like Scott that you are are recognizing that, oh my, there are some things that are that I there's some self some habits or things that you do that can be explained by a sensory processing need. We we all have things like that, and it's extremely important for us to to take take a second and third look and and consider what might be the issue and how to address it. Uh, Jeremy, you've been kind of quiet over there, so I want to ask you about how you go about meeting sensory needs, how you go about identifying them. Well, a lot of it is guesswork and just inferring from behavior, figuring out when I'm seeing things that there must be something going on uh, that, that, that's causing a problem. So, in, I mean, in the case of our second son, a lot of his sensory issues trigger behavior that we certainly don't want him engaging in. So he'll, when he was younger, he was a lot more like this than he is now. He's gotten a lot better as he's gotten older. And I think part of that is his impulse control has 
increased. But I, I do remember one time we walked in a store and he just had a fit and we couldn't figure out what it was. The store we'd been before, we had no idea what it was. That maybe the lights were too bright or maybe it was too loud or there was too much activity going on. Yeah. But, uh, I, it's just, we've been in the store lots of times before. I don't, I don't know what it was. He couldn't communicate what the problem was. It was just obvious to me he didn't want to be there. And he loves to go to the store. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't the location. It was something about it. So in terms of meeting sensory needs, there is a bit of detective work that the, the layperson has to do to figure out what might be going on sensory-wise with someone, especially someone who can't always articulate what they're feeling, what they're experiencing. So in, in, this is a case where, where you got to be a little bit of Sherlock Holmes and make observations. That's a big part of managing behavior in educational settings, making observations about what's going on around someone that may be triggering behavior. And then from, the, from examining the environment, moving on to figuring out how to, well, Ideally, the next step would be figuring out how to change the environment so that the individual can be comfortable in their environment. That's not always the case. Sometimes, sometimes, oftentimes, the, the, the drive is to change the individual so that they fit the environment. That is where we get a lot of trouble with in classrooms with students acting out, that's where we get a lot of trouble in the, the workplace with people not being able to function and not being effective in their workplace because the environment that they're in is hostile to the way that they function. So a big part of addressing sensory needs is identifying what things in, the envi in your environment are detrimental to the way that your body works. For a lot of people, fluorescent lights. Fluorescent lights are yes make things a lot harder for so many people to function because there's some of us who can see it flicker. We can see strobing. Neurotypical yeah. uh, people have no idea that they do this, that those lights do that, unless someone who's neurodivergent tells them. Or just the difference in the quality of the light or also autistic individuals are a lot more likely to deal with migraines. Hmm. And Sam, I know you are one yeah. of these people, as am I. And fluorescent lights are a pretty common trigger. And when migraines interact with sensory difficulties that you tend to have because you're autistic, the two are really inextricable. You you don't know which is which, but you know that there's something going on because you feel it. Whether or not you have oral, just just migraines, they're only the aura or the symptoms other than the headache, or whether you have I, I call I call them fancy migraines when you see sparkles and pretty lights. Yeah. Yes. So because autistic individuals are especially likely to deal with migraines, I think this is something that at least needs to be brought up. But you can really not figure out which is which, but you know something's off because you feel it, whether that's the aura or the headache. 
And then there's just the normal, I am sensitive to light because I am autistic. Yeah. Or this kind of light. And there's also a sensitivity to sounds. Yes. Fluorescent uh, lights make a lot of noise. Um, I, it used to drive me nuts when I was younger. I've, I've kind of adapted to it now. I've learned yeah. how to tune it out, but there are times where I'm like, what is that sound? Oh, right. What is it? What is it? And the, the weird light. thing with, with me is that I, there are times when I'm hypersensitive to sound, but there are also times when I'm hypersensitive. It does not maintain as one thing. Yeah. And that's, I think, something that people need to understand because people often assume that, oh, if you're sensitive to sound, you will always be hypersensitive. Or if you are this, you will always be this. No, for a lot of us, it can fluctuate. Yeah, like I've, I've mostly adapted to the sound of fluorescent lights now. Yeah. They don't really bug me unless there's like no other stimuli around. And then it's like, yep. I can hear it again. But you were saying how sometimes your son is completely just does not feel any pain, even if he's injured. And then other moments he will be sensitive to it. That's a good example of what's going on. Yeah. And how people can't just assume, oh, yeah, she's hyper, he's hypersensitive. She's hypersensitive to touch. Well, maybe. But that doesn't mean that we are all the time. We can we can go from hypersensitive to hyposensitive, which is why these needs and these conditions need to be paid much more attention to, because it it can't just be a one size fits all, even for the same person, because yeah. our needs can fluctuate. Yeah. So Scott, you've ventured into the 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 area of adapting environments to help meet the sensory needs. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of brain power to deal with these with this these different sensory processing ways, these different ways of our of our brain responding to incoming information. So really helpful to adapt the environment so that whatever sensory modality is being overwhelmed or underutilized, that it's the right zone so that the information is just right so that our brains can handle it. And you talked, Scott, about, or say, adapting an environment by having students who have auditory processing or who are hard of hearing, let it, having them be closer to the speaker, the person who's speaking in the classroom. What are some other environmental adaptations that can be made in either a classroom or a workplace to help address the sensory needs of the people in the room? Uh, yeah, a uh, study that was uh, written up mentioned that you need, uh, I'm just gonna give a few of the things that are on here, organized routines, and I'll, excuse me, and also when you have that warmth and attention and emotional support, and even when you're talking about that emotional support with me, when I was in the, in the sixth grade and I was having trouble managing how to integrate, how I'm interacting with the classroom because 
one of my major problems was I interrupted and I can even do it on the program. I'm, I'm trying to get better at that is when you want to say something, you don't always have that control. It's like this dam just opens up. Yeah. yeah. Like, heaven's going to say, but wait, wait, is this the right time? Oh, wait, no. Is this the yep. right time? Nope. Oh, forget and, it. I'm just going to say it. And for me, it's like I'm not going to remember it because I deal with brain fog and other things. And there is something similar that is general to most artistic people just because our attention is split in so many different ways, we might not remember it later. And then as a verbal instruction and then just planning activities. Yes. Student can't fail, they're saying. And also for the intellectually challenged or disabled, they're saying disabled, but I'd say challenge. I guess you can say intellectual disability. It's, yes, that is the correct term, intellectual disability. I know, it's, it's uh, introducing that material in small amounts because even when i talked about being overwhelmed at work because yes is when you're dealing with 400 accounts and then you have several different invoices and 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 then you you get i was given a tickler system where i we also made a special copy so that if the salesman didn't get something or it was a way even if i couldn't find something it was another way that it was there and other people could refer to it. And that, that worked, but it's just trying to get everything under that control and putting things in steps. Because a lot of times when you have to go slow with instructions, because it's easy for someone to give all the instructions and then you mm -hmm. don't little step in. But then if you have a checklist, it's better, but still, even with the checklist that's organized, it can get. Yep. So it, yeah. it's really complicated. You really can't, but it's just, and then for emotionally disabled, it's reducing the length of the assignments, giving oral and written instructions, and just having class rules. There are, are so many, and also having a tutor or a mentor. Mentors have, studies have shown that mentors have helped. And then you could have some giving a note taking it's taking a look at it and strategies or how to implement it might be a good way to either have a series of trainings or even a, a few different podcasts on different learning styles and, and approaches to it. So the, a lot of the things that you just mentioned, Scott, that are recommended to be deployed in the classroom can also work in the workplace. Yes. Things like setting routines, providing emotional support for your workers, having written and verbal instructions, having checklists, so everybody knows where the, what they're supposed to be doing and when. Also, it's called chunking, breaking large tasks into small bits or breaking large amounts of information into small bits so that it's easier to, to remember. And it's yeah, easier a, to learn the small chunks than the whole big thing. Yeah. The difference between trying to eat a hamburger in one bite and eating yeah. it in small bites. Yeah, well, there's a reason that you remember. A perfect example of this is that there's a reason that you remember phone numbers in those lit, in the yes. area code, the exchange, and then the, the, I don't know what the last four numbers are called. I can't remember. But there's a reason that you remember it in those in those pieces, 
And psychological studies have proven that there is greater retention if you divide these pieces of information up because it's easier for the brain to process Mm -hmm. and easier to retrieve when needed and easier to encode even. Um, That's actually where the term chunking comes from. Um, Yes. Research has found that that when you break large amounts of information into small pieces, we learn it better. Now, other adaptations for learning environments, we have all experienced the adaptation of virtual learning and virtual meetings. That's a great adaptation for people who being in a large group or getting to a, a certain space for a meeting is a challenge for them. So now and we can do virtual meetings. We exactly. There are disabled exactly. There are disabled people who have been fighting for this for years and years and years and years. But suddenly when it became something that able people needed to do, everyone was able to do it. Hmm. So I hope that maintains because there are a lot of people for whom it is good, even if, even if it's oh, other people don't think so. I mean, there was a, an article I read, I can try and find it, that said, if I remember correctly, about 60% of people, somewhere between 45 and 60% of people wanted to continue working from home somewhere, and you could, you could potentially pick more than one of these answers which is why these numbers might not add up to 100 exactly. I think around 40% of people wanted to have some sort of hybrid and by far the lowest number of people. I don't remember how many. I think it was closer to 20 or 30%. Although I'm not sure, again, I can find the article, wanted to return to every day in the office. So this proves that these accommodations are doable for sensory needs and that it is something that in reality, a lot of people agree with, even neurotypical people. Yeah. And other adaptations that you can make to a work environment include checking the quality of the light in the space. Is it too bright? Is it not bright enough? Is the wavelength off? Is it a, a wavelength that gives people anxiety or a wavelength that helps people calm down? Which is it? And you can buy filters to cover particularly fluorescent lights to change the quality of the lights in a space. Mm-hmm. It's something that helps people stay calm and centered. What, what's the sound quality of the space? Does it echo a lot? What kind of noise are the electronics giving off? Some of us can hear the electronics. And, you know, it's not like the sounds that everybody else can hear. It's the sounds that a very small subset of people can hear. Or are the acoustics terrible in the other direction? That the room you're in eats up all sound, pretty much. I I have a hard time envisioning a, a space that is too quiet. Yeah, more like more like it, it it blurs the sound so that you can't understand it or hear it properly. It's from that's that's where I'm going with this. But there are people 
whom it can be too quiet. However, I think we also want to point out that for the lighting, that often means warm, warmer lighting more than cooler, bluer lighting. This has been proven in the ways that it, it blue light keeps us from sleeping, makes us more anxious, that sort of thing. So if anyone is looking and listening to this, looking for ways, okay, what do I do with my lights? Warmer light, warmer wavelengths of light are generally better in this regard. Yes. And also with regards, I was just glancing at some of the accommodations and it wasn't a good idea is when you're dealing with any of these disabilities is to is to encourage the progress that's been made. Yes. Acknowledgement, yes. Even in my in my work is a lot of times I was on the review, it was all the negatives. It wasn't it was just, oh, it meets or it doesn't meet. But it would have been nice to have a few more of the positives because I yeah. saw so I'm like, oh, there's so many of the needs improvement or doesn't meet the expectations. And also having uh, ahead of time some of the key words, it's a good a good thing to add in to have key words or something to prep that assignment. So the student can have an idea of what it's all about. It's like getting the teaser to a novel. You have an idea of the roadmap. That's a good way to put it. We are about out of time. Out of time. So, yeah. any last, any last thoughts, comments on the sense, sensory needs and meeting sensory needs and understanding sensory integration and sensory process. Whether you are autistic or neurotypical, don't go into interactions expecting something specific because that almost always will set you up for not meeting what your expectations are. If you expect that it's going to be quieter, if you expect that you're not going to have to deal with such and such or anything, don't set that up because then you might not be prepared to deal with what comes along. Neurotypical people don't expect that just because someone has been had this need in the past, that's what they're going to need in this interaction with you. Yeah, I have I have a note down here um, that says managing expectations of others. Yep. Um, first, the individuals need to manage their own expectations. Ask, is this a is this fair? Is it realistic? What do I do if my expectation isn't met? Or even is or even is this something I need to do? Or is this just putting me in extra sensory stress when I don't need to be in it? Yeah. Yeah. So it, oh. is, it is important for people to learn to manage their expectations of others and be clear with yourself, at least, what it is you're expecting and have a plan for what you're going to do when those expectations aren't met, especially if you don't communicate those expectations. Someone can't meet your expectations mm -hmm. if they don't know what they are. Yes. Also, the the notion, it just when we're talking about that, is the idea of having goals or like smart goals that's specific, measurable, attainable, uh, realistic, and timely. If we kind of tie that into this whole idea of our 
sensory needs and integration and management, it would really make it so much better. But that can be a challenge because each one ha- we've discovered through this podcast, each one of us has different needs and expectations. And how do you communicate that? But it's a day-to-day detective work, as you've said, Sam. Yeah. And that's, that's one of my, my um, autistic superpowers is observation. <laughs> I never knew what the heck people were doing. Why, why are they doing Why are they saying this? Why, what is it they're, they're expecting of me? And so I learned to make lots of observations about body language and the words people use and where they stand and when they stand and, and all that fun stuff to, to help better understand other human beings. Because y'all don't make no sense to me at the time. Like, we'll put a big O on you for observation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's not an S on my, on my chest. It's an O for observation. Jeremy, any last thoughts, comments? Yeah, I just wanted to say that, I mean, we, we just had a nice instance of assuming from your own perspective what, what there can be uh, for, for others. Um, we're, we're thinking, so this is what it's like for me. Sam said, I can't imagine it being too quiet, right? But of course, there are people for whom it is too quiet sometimes, right? I mean, we have this reward system in our brain right what what uh what what we ordinarily will seek after in order to get things out of life we we there's there's ways our brain will motivate us to to, to do things mm-hmm. and input and so on right so some people have are receiving less of that and therefore they'll be seeking sensory activities yes and what is it like for them when they're not getting enough of that? And I mean that that explains why our son will toss plates out the window this evening break, or will put his his sometimes put his tablet in the oven or something. Like he wants to he wants to see something, wants to experience something, wants to hear something, or he wants and to right. That and is I don't know inc- what it is ever. <laughs> I don't know what that, it is he's after. Usually. Yes, that is incredibly important. One last thing is that stimming self-stimulation is often when you were talking about oh this isn't the way to sit this isn't the way to do things this is the way stimming in order to deal with the sensory input around you or the lack thereof or what you are feeling sensorially internally is often vilified or and that is not right. There's nothing wrong with it as long as your stimming is not self-injurious or harmful to others. And yet people vilify it all the time. There's nothing wrong with it. But even in it's the helpful. case where it is, even in the case where it is self-injurious or harmful to others, we need to figure out why someone's doing yep. it. Yeah. And 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 help them get their needs met. Because that's not happening. So yeah, find um, another find another stem or something that meets the same need, but do not vilify it in general. Yeah, because it serves a function and helps people. Yeah, I often hear, uh, oftentimes in in, in parent centered circles, 
about yeah. the, the kid who, who can't go to the bathroom by themselves and who's always banging their heads on the wall as a justification for for speaking um, negatively, derogatorily about people with developmental disabilities. And of course, my first reaction is, if someone's banging their head on the wall, there's, there's a, a reason. reason. Find out what that reason is. <laughs> and it's Don't often used that. to excuse yeah. treating their children in particular ways. Yes. Unfortunately, it is that is a justification that is often used to excuse abuse. And frankly, there's always a reason. Yes. It it may take it may be easy to figure out, it may be hard to figure out, but there's always a reason. And the the important thing is to figure out what that reason is and address the need that's either not being met and so they're banging their heads or whatever's whatever banging their head gives them, find some other way to give it to yes. them. Yes. That doesn't involve banging your head on the wall. As yes. say, it's not rocket science, but it is. So yes, if if you come if you come across someone who's engaged in self injurious behavior, recognize that there's a reason for that. It may be a sensory reason. It may be a mental health reason. They may be trying to get your attention. There's a reason behind it, and it's imperative that if you, the caregiver, figure out what that reason is. If you can't figure it out, go find someone who can help you figure it out. Don't, yes. just complain, don't just complain about it. You have to find find the reason and address that reason mm-hmm. instead of talking smack about the person who's engaged in injur- self-injury yes. behavior because that's not helping them. No. Okay. <laughs> now that we're coming back from that tangent. As usual. As usual. Thank you, everyone, for sharing for sharing your time and your experiences and your wisdom. And Liza, Scott, Jeremy, thank you so much for being here and for being part of this. We want to encourage everyone to follow us on Straight Independent Radio. Its website is Straight Indie Radio, straight with an eight, dot US. You can find us also on Blog Talk Radio. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts feel free to drop us a note at sentia.org about topics that you would like to hear us discuss on the podcast you're listening to life fantastic the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability i'm your host the idea dynamo samantha pierce thank you so much for listening we are sponsored by neurodiversity consulting .org and Sentia.org, and you can find us on Straight Independent Radio. Join us next time when we have another conversation on a topic that's important to people with disabilities. 